0: Weed, cocaine, ecstasy, whiskey, cigarettes, Xanax, coffee. What do these things have in common? And besides being what gets half of us through the day? They're all drugs. And since the beginning of humanity itself, we've had a near fetishistic obsession with them. Is that really our fault? Or are we built like that? Today, we're going to talk about the history of drugs, what their place in America is, and what we're doing about it. And... Like every other episode so far, I went into this really thinking that I knew what I was talking about, and wow, was that dumb. Drugs are a hard topic because, like the desires for some good fucking and some good DACA, it hits our little monkey brains in just the right place to make us love it. So without further ado, let's get into this episode of Why Aren't You Talking About This? Hello everyone, and welcome to Why Aren't You Talking About This? Welcome to the third episode. I am your host, William. And uh, thank you for listening and for showing up on class on time. There will be a test. However you found this podcast, be it a recommendation from your favorite Tinder-based hooker, or you're obligated to listen because you chose to be within three degrees of separation from me, it means the world that you're listening. I'll be your drug-free drug sherpa as we dig in this topic and try desperately to avoid the FBI finding my search history from the last three episodes. Since this is the third episode in a batch of three, I don't have any of your hopefully lovely and supportive comments or feedback to share, so instead I'll give a recap of what it is I do here. So every week, not every week, jeez, I keep making that mistake, every other week <laughs> I'll be picking a contemporary political, social, or economic topic as either really divisive or misunderstood. Then I'll present to you some of the history information I found on it, some general opinions and beliefs around it, and then I'll tell you what I think, because we all know that's what you want to hear. What a stranger on the internet thinks about drugs. Also, since we're going to be covering a lot about drugs, if you're a covering addict and hearing about your drug of choice would fuck you up, please don't listen. There'll be more stuff in a few weeks, and there's an episode of Way to Add Nerd that you can listen to in the meantime. Take care of yourself, sexy. And let's get into it. So this time we're talking about drugs and why they're so fucking good. Or um why they're so bad? I don't know. It's difficult and complex and I'm not good with drugs. The only drugs I've ever taken that weren't a prescription or because I needed them is weed and alcohol. And as your boy's on antidepressants and broke, I haven't been able to do either in a while. So like getting late and being a manly man with a big fucking gun I don't have the experience to be the voice of authority about what drugs are like. So, take that with a grain of salt if you don't want to listen to someone tell you about drugs, unless they've done more crack than a butthole can hold while crossfade out of their mind on more weed than an overgrown lawn and enough vodka to drown a horse. I'm not that cool. I'm just, have a podcast and pretend women like me cool. And before I keep roasting myself as a shield against my own insecurities and to deflect your very reasonable constructive criticism, Let's talk about drugs in a more general sense. What are they, and how they work? Well, children, drugs are, according to the dictionary, a medicine or other substance which has a physiological effect when ingested or otherwise introduced into the body. Which, if you check the list of things I include, could include just about anything that enters your body. I mean, for example, if you were to gulp down some dick, assuming that you're into that, that would have a physiological effect on your body and a psychological effect on everyone else in the Denny's. But we wouldn't really call that a drug. And look, I'm being obtuse intentionally, really means a chemical into the body that is then absorbed and metabolized, not sloppy toppy of the third most likely breakfast place to end up at 2 in the morning. But according to US law, a drug is any articles that are intended for use in the diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease in humans or animals, and any articles other than food, water, or oxygen, they're intended to affect the mental or body functions of humans or animals. Which again, it's really easy to be obtuse about, but that's really it. If you put your mind to it for long enough, I'm sure there's tens of thousands of things you can think of that count as drugs by these definitions. But how do they work? Basically by interfering with our brains. By using a drug, it'll block your neurotransmitters and or manipulate how your brain processes them for an effect. So, for example, a drug like cocaine causes your brain to overproduce dopamine and norepinephrine, making you feel a lot better about yourself and feel a lot more focused. Of course, a lot of drugs, like weed or painkillers, just straight up clog your neurons, making it difficult for brain signals to get transferred and chilling you the fuck out. Or shrooms just wax the whole thing up. If other drugs are like modifying your PC to make it run exactly how you like it, hallucinogens are downloading a few sketchy apps and then pouring maple syrup into the case. Like, it's still a computer, but until that shit gets out of it, it isn't running how it should. In other words, it just fucks your shit right up. But now we're going to go over the seven kinds of drugs, just to make sure we all understand the terminology I'm going to reuse for the rest of the episode. These are brought to us by the DRE, by the way. And no, not Dr. Dre or Digital Rectal Exam, which were my first two mistakes. It's the drug recognition experts, which was what they called me at community college. The first type of drug is central nervous system depressants. These drugs increase the amount of gamma amnioburotic acid in your brain. Gamma amnioburotic acid, or GABA if you sit to pee, is a neurotransmitter that makes your brain slower. Its category includes alcohol and barbiturates which is why doing just about anything is hard when you're drunk because your brain literally can't coordinate your body, conscious thoughts, and instincts anymore. However, antidepressants are also in this category because your brain isn't producing enough neurotransmitters, so flooding your brain with the chill-out homey chemical helps you to not want to die every second of every day. Helps. The second type is central nervous system stimulants. These guys fuck up your production of dopamine and norepinephrine. Dopamine, usually called the happy chemical, is something your body uses to help you move, feel good, be motivated, and form memories easier. And norepinephrine changes your blood pressure, makes you more alert and sensitive, and carries messages to your nerve endings. So when these two get together and start a brain rave, you feel really fucking good. Your heart starts pumping, your lungs wheezing, your balls tingling, your eyes dilate, and you start to unironically like electronic music. Drugs that do this are ones like cocaine, meth, and nicotine. The biggest meds used are amphetamines, which are used for ADHD and appetite suppression. And also, caffeine is one of these. Next are hallucinogens. These crazy sons of bitches go into your serotonin receptors and start fucking up the furniture. This causes your brain to overload on serotonin, since serotonin comes home from a boring day at the office to see people doesn't know doing doggy on his couch using a table leg as a paddle and decides not to call the police, and instead jumps in. And if this happens enough, since serotonin affects how you perceive reality, everything starts going real wacky. Since your brain can't figure out what's reality and what's a dream, what's an actual dick or just someone's weird elbow, your entire perception of reality just goes absolutely nutters. While there aren't medications yet, there is some promise using things like LSD and shrooms to help manage trauma which is why the hardcore B&E orgy metaphor makes sense. Sometimes you just need a B&E BDSM orgy to take the edge off. That definitely wasn't just a sloppy dirty joke. Disassociative anesthetics like PCP and cough medicine, which is a fucking wild difference, literally just blocks the doors to the pain receptors like a Karen Wang 30 cents knocked off the price of corn, which causes you to feel invincible in high doses and it basically does, since pain compliance doesn't work anymore, and you don't stop if something hurts you. Which is why some people on PCP can literally walk through a shotgun blast to the chest, because their brain didn't get the memo that their entire fucking ribcage snapped open like a Kit Kat bar. Narcotic analgesics, I'm never going to be able to pronounce that right, don't judge me, are opioids, and basically work by attaching to special nerve endings all throughout your brain and spinal cord. When they hit these nerve endings, you feel euphoric, stable, and it kills pain. And this one I can attest to because I've been injected with morphine on an ambulance and it feels good, but also is incredibly dangerous because your brain really fucking loves it, and also overwhelm the receptors and just whole ass stop your heart. So, you know, be careful if you use these. The second to last one is actually really cool and interesting to me. So cannabis is in a category of its own. And why is that? Well, because depending on the strain, the method of use, and the exact drug you're taking, it can be a hallucinogen, stimulant, or depressant, all with very similar chemical makeups. When taken normally, and using marijuana, weed causes relaxation, better sleep, and reduces anxiety. You can also massively manipulate your perception of time, make colors sharper, sounds clearer, and other sensory effects on top of boosting your mood, appetite, and for some people, improve their motivation or focus. And this would also include things like fake cannabis and drugs that function similarly to it, like salvia, which is a hardcore hallucinogen. Okay, now, the final one I don't think should be a category, or if it is, it should be dumb shit, stop it, inhalants. This whole category is all the shit you shouldn't be huffing, puffing, blowing, or slurping at your nostrils like a fucking degenerate. Glue, paint, resin, gasoline, you name it. The reason why this stuff feels good and makes you all kooky is because your brain is in panic mode because you're breathing in literal poison. Your brain doesn't understand what the fuck is happening. It's just throwing shit in your sensory circuits and motor cortex, hoping you stop being so fucking dumb. So don't do inhalants. So now we're going to move on to some drug statistics. First, we're going to go over the number of users. Again, to get some context on drugs and drug use. So the first listing is the number of users in the U.S., while the second is a survey done amongst worldwide drug users. First in the U.S. is caffeine, with approximately 263.6 million users, Sangha's as alcohol at 139.8 million users, tobacco at 58.8 million, weed at 2.9 million, prescription stimulants also at 2.9 million, meth at 2.2 million, Prescription painkillers at 1.9 million, heroin at 957,000, cocaine at 638,000, and finally, prescription sedatives at 319,000. Which was both really surprising for me to find out where different drugs rank, especially in comparison to how used they are in fear tactics and how often they're reported. And granted, while things like meth and heroin are fairly dangerous drugs, and those numbers are really fucking bad for just over 3 million users... With how much the news talks about it, you'd expect higher numbers, right? Oh, and by the way, alcohol is absolutely a drug. Don't even argue me on this. I will reply to your email with a picture of a syphilitic dick. Not my own. I'll use Google, but, yeah. Also, I don't have a syphilitic dick. Now for drugs worldwide. The survey used here has a base of 115,000 respondents meant to represent a global figure. So rather than numbers, it's percentages. So number 1 was caffeine at 90%, number 2 was alcohol at 86.3%, weed at number 3 was 60%, tobacco with 22.3%, cocaine with 19.1%, MDMA with 19%, 7th was amphetamines at 12.2%, LSD with 11.4, magic mushrooms with 10.4% and finally prescription opioids at 9.8%. So Now we're going to look at the addictiveness. Where I'm pulling this from is from a Lancet article called, here we go, Development of a Rational Scale to Assess the Harm of Drugs of Potential Misuse by Professor David Nutt, Dr. Leslie A. King, William Salisbury, M.A., and Professor Colin Blakemore. The reason I'm primarily leaning on them is because by and large there isn't too much research that focuses on putting the exact number on the addictiveness of different drugs. least, not that I can find, and especially not for the U.S. So from the top, it is heroin, cocaine, tobacco, street methadone, barbiturates, alcohol, benzos, amphetamine, buropranephrine, and ketamine, in that order. And the last factor we're looking at is lethality. And this is going by death per year attributed to the drug. And this is also in America. Uh, At first place is alcohol, with 95,000 deaths per year. Second is fentanyl at 54,750 deaths per year, cocaine at 19,447, and then heroin, hydrocodone, methadone, morphine, and oxycontin all contribute to the 69,000 opioid deaths per year, but are all slightly different, Um, even though the CDC kind of tracks them all in the same category. Uh, Benzos kill 12,290 people a year, and meth kills 5,600 people a year. If you're following along closely, you'll start to smell some bullshit, and it's not just me this time. So, alcohol, which is the most lethal drug in America, sixth most addictive drug, and the second most commonly used drug in the entire country, and the prohibition of it is seen as ridiculous and a clear failure. However, there are people in power right now dragging their feet over the legalization of marijuana, which only makes the list of users two whole places and about 136.9 million users. Which is reeks of bullshit to me. And the pretty constant crusade against hallucinogens as well. Considering that they don't rank in the top 10 on any of the scales. I also want to look at the cost of these drugs. Both legal and illegal in the US. And we're going to start with caffeine. Um, with the legal caffeine trade. I don't know about an illegal one. Black market coffee, maybe I'd like to try some. But, anyways, the legal caffeine trade, mostly being coffee, is worth about 19.4 billion USD, while alcohol is 222 billion USD, and medications are worth 89 billion dollars USD as of 2014. So, what's the illegal drug trade worth? 500 billion, trillions, whatever number they make up on TV to make you scared? No. In the U.S. right now, it's worth about $32 billion. Which is less than double what coffee is worth in the entire U.S. And the thing is that this is really important regardless of what side of the argument we're on. We're causing a ton of pain and suffering and incarceration over something relatively small. But also, legalizing drugs and accepting whatever that means also means we're gaining that benefit for what the U.S. government would consider paying for an over-the-pants hand job of pocket change. An embarrassing low amount of money for a surprisingly slow and anticlimactic finish. Throughout all my research, there was one thing that kept nagging at me besides my crippling addiction to jerking off procrastination and anxiety. Why? Why do humans love drugs and why are they so enticing? Well, it's actually pretty easy, honestly, and your big old jelly bean counter up there can be summed up in three one word answers curiosity, performance, and pleasure. Basically, consider, if you will, that you're a caveman, and one of your buddies next to you starts chewing on a leaf. And suddenly, out of nowhere, his eyes dilate like crazy wide and he's bugging out. Now normally this would mean, oh fuck, Grunkle Snack is about to fucking die. But he doesn't die. And when he comes out of it, he says, I just had the craziest thing happen. When your curious little monkey brain asks him what happened, he can't explain it. Words don't do it justice decide, fuck it, and take a nibble because you want the nipple-hardening, ball-tensing experience he just did. And suddenly, you understand what he's talking about. You feel really fucking good. You feel fast as fuck. You can hear a lot better, and suddenly you aren't tired. You feel like you can nut-tap God and he'd thank you for it. And then it's gone, and you're staying there with a coca leaf in one hand and a caveman crackhead contraption in the other. Really what it comes down to is that your brain is hungry for experiences, especially ones that feel good. And drugs feel really fucking good and are hard to describe to people who have never done them before. So your brain really, really, really wants it. And then once you get it, you're part of an in-group, a community of users that know what that feeling is and like it too. Then combine that with the fact that some drugs can do cool stuff and make better things, see the face of God or help you calm down or ignore pain, then holy shit, you have a secret sauce that makes the human brain come in under 10 seconds. It all comes down to the fact that we are dumb little anxiety ridden Apes. And there's actually one more thing to mention before we move on to the history segment of this episode. The drug schedule. And this ain't your grandma's little plastic week planner of special candy you could can eat as a kid. It's what the U.S. government uses to arrest minorities for bullshit. Oh, sorry, I said the quiet part out loud. It's the classification of danger on a scale of 1 to 5. So Schedule 1 is high risk of addiction with little to no medical use. Stuff like heroin and MDMA, but also peyote, LSD, and weed. So, you know, not a perfect system. Schedule 2 are very dangerous drugs that have a high risk of being abused and are likely to kill their user eventually. This is stuff like meth and crack, which makes sense, but also they include fentanyl. Think about that. Uh, Schedule 3 are all the drugs that have a risk of some kind of addiction or physical dependence happening. This would include stuff like steroids and ketamine. Schedule 4 are drugs that are low-risk, stuff like Xanax and Valium, the stuff that's notorious for never being abused, especially not by incredibly successful rap artists. Schedule 5 drugs are ones that are mostly considered safe with low likelihood dependency, like cold medicine and the stuff they let children eat. This schedule system, as you can probably tell by the fact that ketamine, meth, and fucking Valium are all considered less harmful than weed, is broken and probably has some racist or at least political agenda tied to it. And you'll see that in the history section. So let's go. And we start 200 million years ago. Buckle in, this is going to be a long timeline. Okay, just kidding. I bring this up because his belief that the taste for drugs evolved before we existed. With both ape ancestors able to metabolize alcohol and other naturally occurring drugs, it's believed we co-evolved with a lot of these plants. And why? Well, the best guess researchers can come up with is that social animals like us use drugs as a bonding experience, and the plants like it because dirty little perfs can cover us in pollen, and they have a war fetish. I'm kidding about one of those, it's up to you to decide which is. Where we actually start are two very slim dates from a very long time ago. The fourth is 40,000 BC, where the concept of both war and hammers were a pipe dream at best. Around this time is the first evidence that aboriginals in Australia were smoking something similar to tobacco. This is accurate, that means humans doing drugs about ten times older than the concept of land ownership. Similarly, probably just as old are the uses of drugs. Just about every known culture in the world, drugs are used for ceremonial and religious purposes, as entertainment, and for curative powers. Most of this general world timeline is going to be focused primarily around alcohol, seeing as the story of drugs is... Kind of just going through human history and saying, yep, someone was fucked up while that happened. So we're going to focus mainly on drinking. Uh, and the first evidence of intentionally making alcohol comes from either 11,000 BC in Israel or 7,000 BC from the Henan province of China. In both of these cases, scientists found trace elements of alcohol in clay vessels or rocks with divots in them. This makes the creation of alcohol officially old as shit and anywhere between 3,000 to 7,000 years older than society itself. But really solid evidence comes from Georgia, the European one, not the American one, about 6,000 BC, which is still old as shit. Only about a 1,000 years later do we have solid evidence of the use of tobacco in the Americas. But by 3,400 BC, there's the evidence of opium in Egypt and Mesopotamia as a medicine and as something to do. Because if you didn't know it before, unless you're really poor, really powerful, life is boring as fuck for the most part back then. And again, to the Americas, at about the same time, there's evidence of coca leaves, which cocaine is made from, being used as early as 3000 BC. This is also when a legend from China states that the origins of humans using caffeine was when leaves from a tea tree fell into boiling water and gave the emperor the Scooby-Doo's in a good way. But we know for a fact that caffeine from coffee was likely introduced in the 1500s from the Middle East. But not everything is happy in kumbaya the human brain wasn't evolved to consume very many drugs or very much at one time, since those plants were kind of rare and hard to distinguish between the good time petals and the blast from both holes of the death petals. So the brain didn't evolve to have a control switch or button to tell us when we were using too much. It means that we figured out, oh shit, we can bend nature to our will and did in agriculture. We learned which plants made us feel all tingly in our tummies and grew them. And thus, addiction is born full force coming straight out of the womb kicking, screaming, and mugging the nurse for crack money. Anyways, back to booze. Alcohol was used for a long time, including up to the last few centuries, as both a diluting agent and a medicine since at least 2100 BC, alongside cannabis, which had been used in medicine in China starting around 600 years before that. Alcohol was a dilutant because in areas where there were disease or polluted water, The alcohol would help to kill microbes, so you'd add wine or beer, most of the alcohol that exists until the ADs, to make water safer. But, unlike what some people will tell you, people didn't walk around drunk all the time. Rather, this was a strategy you'd employ when half the village was shitting and pissing and puking all over the place, since there was probably something in the water. In some truly massive metropolises, this would be used more commonly, when the River Thames would do its bi-weekly, give-everyone-dysentery it's now famous for. Alright, now we're going to be a little less meandery, since there's some really clear stuff that starts happening. So, beginning in the late Middle Ages, around the 1500s, humanity started to realize, huh, maybe all this drinking and drugs isn't a great thing to promote. And the narrative in Europe shifted from booze as God's glorious love sauce ring from heaven, to a more neutral stance that overdrinking and drunkenness counts as the sin of gluttony. However, around the same time, spirits were invented. Spirits are high-proof alcohols made by distilling, and because they were so goddamn strong, they were initially meant only as medicine. But in Britain, after Parliament passed a law meant to encourage people to produce them with grain alcohols, spirits very quickly became a drink, because there's way too fucking much of it to lie about being a medical thing anymore. People don't make enough medicine to drown village in. They make literally three vials, and sell them at $2,400, like a true American capitalist, like those big pharma assholes that I really wish ever had to live with the consequences of their actions. Yeah, I miss the days that we could just storm their house with pitchforks and eat their fucking liver and then charge them $4.5 million to not die every day of their fucking lives. Anyways, alcohol, over the next few centuries, slowly slipped closer and closer to being Satan's taint drippings, and a lot of people in the West very quickly decided, fuck this shit. In the 20th century, the West did a whole lot of prohibitioning and moralizing about it. And, uh, I think we can see where that went. Okay, so, I know that was pretty fast, but the American history is so fucking dense that we need to get into it. So, jumping all the way back to 1607 with the colony of Jamestown. Now, if you know your colonial history, you know that Jamestown was basically shit out of luck from day one. They arrived too late to plant crops, the land was drier than Melina Trump within 100 feet of her husband, and most of the colonists weren't farmers. And the first two weren't really their fault, but why the fuck did they not bring farmers with them? Anyways, it's believed that they managed to eke out an existence after, you know, lost starvation because of not being farmers by growing pot. Well, more accurately, hemp and trading that in order to survive both amongst Native Americans and trained other colonists. So from the beginning, we were kind of built on drugs. Something else to know about the 1600s in America for the colonists is that while we were still on board with the whole getting drunk is sinful thing, we are also very heavy drinkers from the beginning. Alcohol flowed like rivers during social gatherings and it wasn't uncommon to lure people into attending your stupid fucking flower festival using beer and wine. Whenever there's a barn raising, a birthday, someone needed help finishing their field work, or someone got married, you bet your entire butt and hole someone brought some beer which is honestly kind of wholesome and nice. You know, like you're having trouble building your fence, and your neighbors come over to help, and then another neighbor brings the old six-pack, and then boom, now it's a fence-building party. In the 1600s as well, Massachusetts made it illegal to smoke in public in 1623. Why? Because fuck you, that's why. Nah, I, I just straight up don't know. I tried looking into it, and the best I found is, ah, oh, it's fucking smoke, it smells like assholes and Indians in here, and so they banned it. So... Now we move on to the 1700s, starting in 1760, when one man was brave enough to stand up to Massachusetts over 100 years later. And that was Pierre Laurillard, who founded P. Lauriard, America's first tobacco company with the most unique name ever. Then in 1773, America's coffee obsession started with the Boston Tea Party. If you aren't familiar with history, basically the British Parliament decided we needed to pay higher taxes on luxury goods and property, and tea was part of it. So one night, a bunch of dudes dressed as Native Americans broke onto a British ship carrying tea and threw it all into Boston Harbor. And from that day on, Americans drank coffee in solidarity for the Boston tea. What really helped out is that the French also liked coffee, and we liked the French. Also, coffee was a pretty new thing for us over here, and also the French didn't like the British. So all that combined basically meant that if you saw a dude drinking coffee as a British soldier during that time, start running before they pull out the yellow snake flag. Unfortunately, all is not good for American drugs. As, unfortunately, during the post-revolution clarity, Britain took its ball and went home. The ball, in this case, being rum. And now these poor, alcoholic Americans only had boring-ass beer and shit-ass French wine to drink. Until some good old boys in Kentucky and Tennessee made whiskey from corn, and suddenly America had its own freedoms, per Bald Eagle, drink to call its own. In fact, we made so much of it as the alcoholic little scamps that we are, that it became cheaper than beer for a while. Which is dirt-fucking-cheap. Going into the 1800s, marijuana plantations began flourishing basically everywhere from New York to Mississippi. Which, if you're a stoner, I want you to think for an extra second before celebrating too much. Remember, plantation, not farm. Slavery, not paid work. Remember that. By 1830, alcohol became such a common thing that the aftermath of alcohol a person over the age of 15 would drink a year in gin alone was about 7 gallons. I want you to really imagine that. Several million people, 15 years and older, drinking 7 gallons of gin, just gin, in one year. Bonkers. But then, as we silly little Americans often do, We did a full 180, and by 1835, about 12% of Americans swear off drinking entirely. And, of course, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Instead, for a few decades, a temperance movement had been bubbling up, and alcohol itself was being villainized as a foreign influence that took over good men and made them animals. And this eventually led to the big bad of this arc of the American drug history anime, Massachusetts to ban the sale of hard liquor by 1838. But, unfortunately for them, all this meant is that sometimes when you bought something, you also got a free drink with it. Then in 1849, opium comes to America big time, as we quote-unquote invite a lot of Chinese immigrants to work on railroads on the West Coast. Obviously, as people with hard labor jobs who had experienced with a fuckload of pain, opium was a fairly good remedy. As they shared it with their Anglo co-workers, opium spread. The next year, about half of all Americans had sworn off drinking entirely and marijuana had become a common drug for medical purposes. that in 1850, you could be smoking a fat rip from your opium pipe, take a swig of coffee, and quickly puff down some medical marijuana, and you wouldn't be considered a no-good rebel until you asked for whiskey without water. Wild times to be alive, man. But then by 1864, just in time for the Civil War, Coffee becomes massively popular as the Arbuckle Company begins to develop and sell pre-roasted coffee grounds, and no, not that Arbuckle, making it a lot easier to prepare, and somehow, with more than half of all soldiers being completely sober, the Civil War happens. During the war, morphine is developed and used as one of the strongest medical painkillers available at the time, but, unfortunately, causes a population of about 400,000 morphine addicts. Meanwhile, Folgers, House, and Hill Brothers Coffee are all formed. After the Civil War, instant coffee was invented and is an absolute smashing success. Also on the rise in the 1870s is the massive rise of opium use. It becomes enough of an issue that San Francisco, a minor villainous arc of the manga the anime hasn't caught up to yet, makes going to opium dens or owning one a misdemeanor. Or in other words, a fine and a smack on the cheeks. Your choice of cheeks. But the rampant use of opium isn't slowing down, since opium is fucking tasty. And the fear was that it would cause white people to stop working and cause an unemployment problem. And while the white men are distracted, the Asian men would sleep with the white women. Which, keep in mind, at that time was something that you could say in public and people would agree with you. Instead of everyone now understanding what the fuck did you just say? (laughs) And this is... Partly the reason for the creation of the Chinese Exclusion Act, where are told the Asian people we, quote-unquote, kindly, asked to come over to America to now just fuck off. And 1886 is a great year for cocaine, as Dr. William Alexander Hammond endorses his use as medicine, and John Pemberton, for the first time, combines coca leaves and cola deez nuts into a syrup to jack people up. And medicinally, of course. Then closing out the 1800s, that's Coca-Cola, by the way. Then closing out the 1800s, in 1890, Congress passes an opium tax and heroin is created to not only address the morphine addiction problem, but also as a damn good cough syrup. Which I think both are a bit of an understatement. But this golden age of drugs everywhere is coming to an end. At the beginning of the 1900s, there were not only a fuck ton of heroin addicts, but 200,000 cocaine addicts as well, and an estimated 3.5 billion cigarettes were sold in 1901 alone. Basically, America's solution of fuck minorities, and ignore it, surprise, surprise, wasn't working too great. This is in addition to rising numbers of alcohol consumption in the U.S. And opium in general became enough of a problem that by 1908, President Roosevelt assigned Dr. Hamilton Wright as Opium Commissioner of the U.S., which isn't as fun as it sounds. He was basically responsible for all the opium in the U.S. and trying to get the number of addicts down. Which, if you know how that's going today, imagine back then. The next year, in 1909, the Smoking Opium Exclusion Act, much like its name implied, made it illegal in the U.S. to sell, distribute, or smoke opium. But uh uh-oh, there's a loophole. Heroin and morphine aren't opium, dumbass. They're opioids. So I can smoke as much heroin as my mouth can fit. Well, unfortunately for our druggy heroes of this arc, this his President Taft right the fuck off, and so he hit them where it really hurt them. And in 1901, the arc villain Taft launches attacks against recreational marijuana in revenge. Alright, so it didn't exactly happen like that, but honestly, that's a less shitty version of real history. Rather, what actually happened is that because of the Mexican-American War, we got a ton of new land and new people. There's suddenly a lot of Mexican people in the U.S. And they just so happened to smoke pot for fun. So the same thing happened that happened to the Chinese, and we told another minority to suck our star-spangled cock and told them to stop smoking weed everyone had been smoking for thousands of years. What might also have done the weed industry in America in was a nylon rope salesman that told the Navy that sailors could get high from hemp rope, and so the Navy switched to nylon rope. Also, by the way, hemp doesn't get you high. Then in 1914, the Harrison Narcotic Act passed, which made cocaine illegal and made it very, very difficult to get opioids of any kind. To make it worse for a squad of anime protagonists, 23 states caved the prohibition laws by 1916. This is in part from religious activists and feminist activists allying with the very powerful anti-German leagues that came out during the First World War. Yeah, even prohibition was powered by racism. And in 1919, the 18th Amendment was ratified, which reads, Section 1. After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all the territory subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. Section 2. The Congress and the several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate appropriate legislation. Section 3. This article shall be an operative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislators of several states as provided in the Constitution within seven years from the date of the submission hereof to the states of Congress. Now, something you may notice, there is a number of stipulations. So, into the 1920s, these stipulations become very important. Why, kiddos? Because crime, correct. Immediately in 1920, the Volstead Act passed, with the intent of making alcohol almost impossible to buy by increasing the tax on it. Partially out of this, a special kind of business called a teapad became very popular. These places were small businesses you could go into to smoke marijuana and were associated with hipsters, a black movement that were honestly kind of similar to the hipsters of today. In the same year, the medical community really started to fucking love amphetamines like the rest of us, and 1924... Heroin was made completely illegal. Now, to talk about why Prohibition didn't work, or at least not how the government wanted it to. Basically, it comes down to timing and compromise. The 18th Amendment had so many loopholes, and the Volstead Act was hard to enforce, much less parse, which is why I didn't read it. And on top of that, you may have heard of a little something called the Great Depression, which really makes it a lot harder for cops and lawmakers to care about alcohol smuggling, much less have the resources to do something about it. And also, unlike other drugs, isn't really that hard to make drinkable alcohol, and some industries like the medical and automotive industries need alcohol in general to function. So it's still kind of easy to get your hands on it, because if you knew how to make it, you could make alcohol at home, and you didn't even need to be that smart. Then by 1930, there were over 500 teapads in New York City alone, being both fairly common and quite popular which is understandable how fucking shit everything was constantly because of poverty and gangsters and racism, and also the PTSD from World War One and heroin and everything. Also, 1930, Benzedrine hits the shelves, and holy shit, did people love that tasty stuff. Realizing too late that making drinking illegal won't stop people from drinking, the 18th Amendment is overturned by the 21st Amendment in 1933, which reads... <coughs> Section 1. The 18th article of amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. Section 2. The transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the law thereof is hereby prohibited. So basically, it's illegal for it to be transported across state lines, We also can't be arrested for sipping whiskey to forget all the traumatic shit happening literally every two seconds. If you thought things were looking up, you'd be fucking wrong, buckaroo. Because in 1937, marijuana was made illegal through the Marijuana Tax Act. Because black people, Mexican people, and poor people really liked it. If you don't know, the style of governing at the time was just to make minorities and sad people even more sad. At least now we're trying to make everyone but rich old white men sad, so that's some kind of progress, I guess. Then during World War II, amphetamines and coffee became uber-popular. Amphetamines more than coffee, since it was used by both sides of the war prolifically to make soldiers fight longer. Which, you know, should have absolutely no consequences in the future. By the end of the war and into the 1950s, white people did that thing we do all the time with black culture and stole from them again. This time, in addition to rock music, beatniks appropriate marijuana from the hipsters just to prove black people can't have something good that is just their thing. Around the same time amphetamine became prescription and the first injectable amphetamines were introduced as the US military experimented with LSD through MK Ultra which yes is a real thing. I recommend the Time Suck episode on it for more information. Actually, you know what? Just listen to Time Suck, you glorious hunk of fuck. Anyways, following this but not likely because of this, through the mid 1950s there was increasing restriction on marijuana and increased sentencing for using it. Going to the 1960s, marijuana was introduced in white suburbia, which really pissed off the meth dealers and white coats at the pharmacy. And as a new arc, we're bringing back some old villains, as once again, San Francisco comes in the story in 1962 to crack down on amphetamine production and prescription, forcing labs producing it to go underground. And around the same time as intellectuals are heavily experimenting with and using LSD, the exact formula to make it is patented, dropping the price to make it down to just under 50 cents. For context, for a good hit nowadays, it costs about 20 bucks. Adjusting for inflation, the good shit back then cost the same amount that the poor quality LSD costs now, and all you had to do to get it for free was either be a pretty college girl, or be at any college with a psychology department and a chill professor, otherwise known as going to college. And in 1964, the Surgeon General made an announcement that the tobacco industry had known for decades, saying, hey, stop breathing that shit in. Cigarette smoke actually isn't good for you. And also, fellas, doesn't it sound kind of gay to suck on a long, thin rod habitually? I I made up the last one, but the energy is kind of the same. But due to this announcement, regulations around cigarettes begin to be introduced. Two years later, the golden age of LSD comes to an end as the Gruntsky Bill is passed in 1966, making it illegal to manufacture or have LSD. In 1970, the Controlled Substances Act, where I got the schedule listing, is introduced. Initially, it was meant to streamline drug crime punishments, and to make it a lot clearer what was what, because white people were starting to get angry about how intense marijuana was being published. You know, since it's in white suburbia. And instead of fixing anything, the CSA was implemented because Nixon especially didn't give a single fuck about what America wanted. And we'll get back to that joker in a minute. But during the 1970s, cocaine made a major comeback, becoming the party drug of the decade as LSD continued to decline. Unfortunately, the people of the 70s didn't learn the lesson from opium or cigarettes and saw cocaine as a harmless non-addictive drug that you could basically just use whenever for whatever with no consequences. And in 71, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism was funded to study the effects and addictiveness of alcohol. In the same year, coffee receives a massive revitalization and changes completely forever. While before most coffee was made and drunk black as tar and strained through the sweatiest boo you could peel from a homeless Korean vet, Starbucks enters the game and stirs shit up. Suddenly, coffee isn't the quickest way to get some caffeine into your fat fucking cheeks. Now it's an art form, and something to actually enjoy. And going back to Nixon, we have the year that he declared the War on Drugs. I'm sure you've heard the quote, I'm going to read it again. Almost 20 years later, John Elrichman, I'm not going to bother pronouncing his name right, would say the following about the War on Drugs. You know what the War on Drugs is really about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies. The anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. By getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And, uh, fuck me, that is heavy. Uh, the man literally just said the quiet part out loud and fully admitted that the current war on drugs is to attack minorities and people the government doesn't agree with. Oh, and if you're wondering if he got punished, uh, he founded the DEA with $75 million budget and 1,470 agents. So, yay, America. Luckily, in the late 1970s, Jimmy Carter would come to office and working with Dr. Pete Bourne would fix this. Kinda, not really, not at all. They they pushed for decriminalization, but it pretty consistently got shot down. Just fucking phenomenal. And as the 70s became the 80s, amphetamine used tanked as people realized it was bad for you and gives you meth mouth. And during the 80s, the hysteria around drugs and the Ronald goddamn motherfucking Reagan administration introduced both Just Say No and the Anti-Drug Abuse Act which kicked the war on drugs into high gear. And in 1982 cocaine use hits its peak with 10.2 million users. Then crack is introduced in 85 and in the same year it's found the number one cause of death amongst women was lung cancer associated with smoking cigarettes. So, you know, not super helpful on the cause in 1985. You're really supposed to show people the drugs weren't that bad. And then in 1986, the public is stirred up even more as sentencing increases for both crack dealers and smokers. In the 90s, we get introduced to both black tar heroin, the kind of heroin that is, you know, black and tarry, and also meth. And hey, our old friend LSD is back, and much, much weaker and more expensive this time. Which makes sense, that's only made in Northern California. If you've ever been there, you can understand since nothing good has ever come from Northern California. In 1995, Mexican drug cartels get involved with meth. See, until this point, most meth labs were small operations of, like, a single lab and a nice, toothless, and gangly old couple oper- offering you a meth pipe and some cookies. And, you know, threatening you with violence if you didn't pay them their fucking money. But in '95, cartels really took over. At the same time, the Clinton administration shoots down all suggestions to maybe do one of two things, which are A, stop arresting black people for crack nearly as much, or B, start arresting white people for having cocaine, since at this time, the rate of incarceration between the two was 100 crack convictions to one cocaine conviction. Do you know why that is? Because people who use powdered cocaine were mostly white people, and I guarantee Clinton was one of them. And finally, and luckily, starting from 1996 to 2013, drug policies started to loosen a lot. In 96, marijuana was legal for people with health conditions like AIDS and cancer, and by 2013, 40 states had loosened their drug policies in some way. And in 2010, the Fair Sentencing Act reduced the discrepancy between crack and cocaine charges to 18 to 1, which still isn't great, but hey, that's better. And uh, that takes us to the modern day. As you can hopefully see, the history of drugs in the U.S. is older than the U.S. itself. And a lot of that history is mired in moralizing and fucking over minorities as much as possible. So, let's see if it's any better today. It's not better. I mean, I'm sure some contingent of you out there were really hoping this would be the first episode where I said something is actually pretty chill in the U.S., but that isn't the case one that isn't my personality I love to complain but coming off the heels of history let's talk about drug criminalization so let's assume we didn't just hear of the history of American drug law oscillating spastically between giving minorities the finger and giving fewer shits than a man who eats only cheese why would a drug be criminalized well it would come down to one of two things first that the drug itself is very harmful to people doing it and the society they are part of and that it just generally causes a lot of harm. The thing that jumps to mind for me are things like meth, that just, in general, fucks with your entire brain pan, and deadly things like fentanyl that'll kill you really easily and really quickly without a lot anyone can do to stop it. Sometimes, like in the most generous interpretations of the opium bans, this can be a response to a social crisis, where a drug is causing issues on such a massive scale it needs to be reined in. The other reason to criminalize the drugs is exactly what Mr. Shit-In-My-Mouth-Mommy, John Elkriman, said, to specifically target a group or class of people you can't otherwise target by going after something you know is common amongst them. It's like if to target the alt-right voter base, the government crack down really hard on incest porn. Rather than attacking them directly, you take aim at a thing that specific group you're targeting usually really loves. And I give these options out of fairness. That really, very rarely does an entire group of people decide on big stuff like this out of a sense of evil, spite, or racism. Rather, a good number of people who want to keep drugs illegal probably just believe that they'll do some kind of social damage or cause a social ill. But unfortunately for them, the ACLU and motherfucking Human Rights Watch are against them on this one. And the reason why they hate drug control so much is because right now in U.S. prisons, There are an estimated 137,000 people convicted of nonviolent drug crimes like possession. And in the opinion of Human Rights Watch, this divides communities and disrupts not only families, but businesses, and also society as a whole. And the people put in prison just end up getting fucked over and hurt and sent down the prison pipeline we have. And like a lot of issues in the US, it overwhelmingly affects minorities. With a majority of those in prison for possession being a minority. Which, if you didn't know, is probably why the ACLU fucking hates it. And here's another fucky thing. One in nine crimes in America are drug-related, including possession, and someone is arrested for it every 25 seconds. And for fuck's sake, that's ten times going from limp dick to nutting. Or 25 times going through all stages of grief, realizing nothing matters and everything is awful and never gonna make anything of myself. But, seriously, that's a lot of arrests. And with only 137,000 people in actual prison for it, why the fuck are we even bothering That's such a low success rate. And the other thing about drug criminalization is the sentence length. The minimum a judge has to hand to someone charged with possession is at least 20 months if you're lucky. But federally, it is 81 months. For statutory rape, the minimum is 30 months federally, and for murder it's 144 months. So for context, if you sell someone weed and get charged federally, you could see at least two or maybe three statutory rapists get released before you, and you very well might see a murderer get out on good behavior. And again, this is a minimum. You'll spend at least six and three quarters of a year in prison for having weed on you. But there is some good news in this part of the topic. The legalization and decriminalization angle. Right now, there is lower and lower stigma around drug use, with a number of politicians speaking openly about smoking weed and using other drugs. And also, 59% of all Americans think we should at the very least decriminalize weed, if not outright legalize it. And on top of that, 55% of people think if we're going to have drug crimes, they should be civil instead of criminal. Meaning people don't go to prison for having or dealing drugs, they just pay fines. Next, we're talking about abuse and addiction. Drug abuse, not being neglecting your needles, but overusing them. Drug addiction is honestly a really scary thing, seeing not only how prevalent it is, but also how difficult it is to overcome. As of right now, four percent of Americans could be classified as an addict if they went and got diagnosed, and ten percent of all Americans could have, at some point, being that you, yes, you at home, staring at a wall at the apartment, creepily listening to podcasts. Either you or someone you love could have been considered an addict if only you would go to fucking therapy like me and your mother asked you to. This is a call out. Get help. Go get it right now. Quit jerking off and go to the fucking doctor. Anyways, right now about 6% of Americans have a substance abuse disorder, which is the official name of addiction. Or in other words, 19.8 million people. Now of these people, 38% have an addiction to something illegal, which comes out to 7.5 million people for alcohol, it's 74% or 14.6 million people. If you're thinking to yourself, oh shit, you fucked up your math, you fucking lib. No, I didn't, and yes, I am. Some of those people have overlapping addictions, and I don't know how to separate those out with the power of math because your boy has an English degree. And also, 43% or 8.5 million people have some kind of psychiatric condition. And look, even if you don't give a about the 19.8 million people suffering, or that maybe one of them is someone you love. I mean, first, I want to thank you for watching, Alex. And thank you to whoever sends episodes my podcast, Alex Jones, every time an episode drops. He doesn't know how to work pod player so it's really, really beneficial. Thank you. Um, regardless, I know that you for sure care about the money that drug abuse and addiction costs the taxpayers. Well, Every year, our asses write a check for about $740 billion, which is a whole lot of money. Those accounts for not only medical bills, but also drug-related law enforcement, court fees, and the cost of the house inmates. Because a lot of the time, someone who does drugs ends up behind bars because they do illegal drugs, they'll get caught eventually. They do illegal drugs, they'll eventually fuck up and get someone hurt and end up in prison. So, why does addiction happen? The truth is that we don't, know exactly, but we do know that about 40 to 60% of addiction can be traced back to your genes, but the rest of it comes from stress, trauma, mental illness, and environmental exposure, which is scary as fuck for me personally. Addiction runs in my family, and so does mental illness, so already I'm conservatively at what, 60 to 70% chance of developing an addiction of some sort? Just fucking great. On top of that, I'm constantly stressed the fuck out. So, what, like 75%? Fuck me. And how do we handle drug addiction? Well, like Americans. That is to say, to repress until you can't anymore and erupt in a fireball of hatred and repress desires and then die immediately afterwards. Which is to say, how most people view addiction as some kind of moral weakness or a lack of willpower. Which, while I hate that, I also understand. And if you look at our history, it seems like from as early as the 1830s, we've kind of just assumed that people who drink constantly aren't addicts, but are instead Satan-suckling gluttons. And a lot of that persists to day where seeking help for addiction has a stigma attached to it. However, those who either realize they have a problem or aren't given a chance in the matter do have some options to get help. They can take meds to lessen the side effects of drug dependency and cut down cravings. Do behavioral therapy to teach themselves coping strategies and to slowly overcome their addiction by sticking to certain behavior patterns while avoiding other ones. Or detox and abstinence, where you get the drugs out of your system and then do everything you can to stay away from them. Usually in the modern day, people are prescribed all three. But unfortunately, like the case of Puscock or the image of Daddy Sam, it's going to stay with you for either a long time or forever. You'll never be cured or fixed, and you could always relapse. Be it weeks, months, years, or even your entire lifetime. Christ, alright, so the last major issue with drugs is overdose. And combined with the last point, this is going to get so fucking sad so fucking fast. So buckle in. Back in 2015, the number of deaths we could attribute directly to overdose was 52,404. And in 2020, it jumped up to 91,799 deaths in a year, an increase of about 15% per year, which is astronomically high. By that rate, by 2030, we could expect 137,698 deaths by overdose, which is more than the number of people imprisoned for having drugs on them. And while you'd expect for non-lethal overdose to be climbing at a similar speed, it isn't. Since 2019, the rate has increased by 10%, which is 3.3% per year. And the question is why? Why is it so high? Well, even excluding really deadly drugs, the reasons are the same. Poverty, lack of drug and mental health services, and lack of drug education. Because keep in mind, a lot of people who do drugs are struggling because Drugs are a great method of escapism and a way to cope with life, so poor people and depressed people and people struggling in life buy it in bulk, meaning that drugs are easy to OD on and can quickly become a death sentence as someone overestimates and dies. Secondly, without drug and mental health services, the risk to overdose increases massively since you don't necessarily have the ability to quit, especially without help. Unless someone intervenes quickly, you'll probably just keep on doing more and more until eventually you fuck up and die. And of course is the lack of drug education. Very much like sex ed, drug ed doesn't do a whole lot to help. In most cases they teach don't do drugs, kids, and not how to be safe around drugs, including how to use them to not die. So people either learn on the fly or learn from someone more experience, and you guess that often end up fucking dead. Fuck, I'm sorry this segment ended with such a downer. Let's go to the next section. Hopefully, there'll be some people to laugh at. Alright, so finally in one of these episodes, I can actually share a liberal conservative viewpoint on the topic. Now, if you fall on either side of the spectrum, I'm not going to be describing you exactly. Or, as a matter of fact, probably not the exact party line you represent. Instead, this will be more about a general outline of what usually holds true. Obviously, with a ton of politicians talking about doing drugs, the differences are pretty quickly closing in. But the party line on drugs really represents the philosophical differences between liberals and conservatives in general. So, on the liberal side, what are drugs usually perceived as? Leaning collectivists, liberals usually see drugs as a societal thing. This is both when it's good and when it's bad. Drugs are revenue, a business opportunity for community members, and something to keep people happy. And when it's bad like with addiction and crime, it is our job as a collective society to fix the issue. That usually means fun little buzzwords, like evidence-based treatment plans or anti-prohibition, philosophical and moral outlooks, like addiction being a disease rather than a willpower thing, and arguments that alcohol, a legal drug, is much more dangerous than some of the drugs we call legal. And on the conservative side, drugs are an individual issue. When you're sucking dick in an alley for crack money, That isn't a social issue. That's a you issue. If you feel like it's an issue, it's your job to grip yourself by the grippy socks and pull yourself back on your feet without the government-mandated help. However, conservative leanings also generally accept the traditional narrative of drugs being what the kids call a skill issue. And if you can't handle your shit, then you're a scumbag. And even if it is a disease, you should have known better. However, to their credit, however, to their credit, Conservatives are fans of deterrence, like drug education. But also really like the DARE program and harsh drug laws, so... The one place where the two sides seem to differ from the general collective individual spectrum is who should care. In a liberal perspective, it's your business what drugs you do, and sure, we'll be here to catch you when you fall, but we should back the fuck off and not blow your buzz. For conservatives, however... Everyone needs to know what drugs you're doing, when, why, and how. Since drugs are moral failing and drug use is punished because the person doing them is a shithead, conservatives are more likely to be a fan of the no-homo full cavity search to make sure you aren't keistering any of those tasty-tasty methamphetamines. What's even more interesting is that unlike half of the topics in politics in America, there seems to be a lot of common ground between parties. Both liberals and conservatives want the drug war to end for a lot of different reasons. From the ultra-liberal we should never police drugs ever, to the ultra-conservative, kill everyone who knows what a bong even is. And a lot of people think that the drug war should be over. But how though is a different question entirely. And if it isn't obvious where I stand, I'm pretty liberal on this, but you'll hear more about my soapbox at the end for you. Before that, like the last episode, we're gonna take a stroll down five points for and against drug legalization. Paired off and forced to fight to the death. First, we have the talking points around prohibition. On the pro-drug legalization side of this, the main argument is that the drug war isn't working and we need to focus on better shit. We need to figure out why people do drugs and address the issue rather than punishing them. It's like if every time your kid cried in their bed at night, you threw them across the house face first into a brick fireplace. You're making your kid much worse and also ignoring the clown math hooligans scaring the shit out of them from outside their window. The other part of their argument is that the drug war is expensive as shit, costing about $46.7 billion a year to chase down $32 billion worth of drug trade. Which all sounds fair to me. The other side says, whoa, slow down there, buckaroo, and then sucker punches the other side directly in the nutsack. Because they make the very excellent point that drug use went down 30% between 1984 and 2003, and that, hey this is a big fucking problem and maybe we shouldn't just stop because we don't really have the attention span to give a shit. Add to that that, you know, we aren't exactly monsters and most people arrested end up in rehab rather than prison and they doubt that the people who have been saved because of the drug war would say it's not worth it anymore. And, yeah, you know, I gotta say, both excellent points. You know, it's almost like we fucked it so bad that we can't just stop cold turkey. Ironic. Point two is all about the threat and danger drugs pose. On the legalized side, the argument is easy. What's the danger, douchebag? There aren't a lot of illegal drugs that are illegal because they're dangerous. They're illegal because America doesn't like the people to do them. If these drugs were done responsibly and people could reliably get reasonable and well-tested doses of safe drugs, most of them would be safer than beer, cigarettes, and prescription pills. On the other side, again with a punch in the sack, they say, Hey, addiction, cocksucker. And then uppercut their taint again. A lot of drugs that are illegal are addictive as fuck or have a high rate of abuse. And not all of that is because we're bad at addressing problems like adults. Even if drugs were legalized, addicts would still commit crimes for money to buy drugs. And also, some people are so fucking dense they need to be arrested before they realize the rules apply to them too. And this point, is also really good on both sides. Yeah, drugs would be a lot safer if we could regulate them, but as someone with friends that date shitty people, you know who you are, people are really bad at self-regulating and realizing when they've had too much or when they've crossed the point of no return. Like, moving into their house or needing to smoke crack more than 12 times a day to not feel like you're dying. Point three is crime. On the pro-legalized side, the argument is that by legalizing drugs, we put them under the reins of the FDA, meaning that people cutting drugs into others War with poison wouldn't happen and drugs would be safer. Also, that would help to put the Stone Cold Stunner on drug cartels, make sure the people struggling with addiction aren't treated like criminals so it's easier to get help. On top of that, cops have to do really morally dubious things to find higher level drug criminals, and undercover work is common, which is incredibly dangerous. And so is raiding a meth shed with a methed out shotgun wheeling man and his Walter Tidy Whiteys. This time, not going for the dick. The other side asks a very important question. Who would a black market sell to now? Kids? Would they sell the unregulated shit? Or would cartels decide, fuck it, and start selling people instead? Just because something is legalized doesn't mean the criminals that do it are. And speaking of which, people can still commit crimes because they're poor, even if now it's to go to the crack dispensary instead of the dealer. And like at this point man the anti-legalized folks are starting to make a good fucking argument is this the prostitution episode all over again the fourth point is all about choice on the pro side is the argument that we don't choose to allow this that the government took it upon themselves to enact the drug war and also daddy sam can stay off our boy holes we don't want him to know we're out here snorting crack if it's only hurting ourselves why does the government or my mom give a single fuck why stick my pee hole to feel good? Especially because alcohol is legal, that's problematic as shit. And again, going for the slap across the broad side of the dick, the anti-legalization side puts on some lipstick poorly and says we live in a society. But, which means that drug use doesn't just harm you. It harms your family, your friends, your work, the strangers to keep harassing for Xanax, Jeremy come home, your mom misses you. Also, comparing what you want to legalize, to substances broken more homes than babysitters and porno, started more bloodshed than peace talks, and contributed massively to suicide and murder is a bad move, champ. And finally, we have: Is it even worth it? The pro-legalized side says that outlawing drugs isn't, because we make drugs in this dirty little taboo, which makes people want to try it, especially people who feel isolated, are on the outside of society. And also, people do drugs like hope, not because they're dumb little psychopaths that get off to shanking high schoolers for drug money. Drug use and drug abuse aren't the same, so let's stop pretending it is. Getting kind of tired, the other side stands back up and goes, yeah, this is a medical, social, and criminal issue. Not one, all three. Because we can't pretend that if we legalize drugs, as all kumbaya and everything is going to be okay. Because drugs are harmful and unhealthy and people do crazy shit for them. And Now, normally I'd go over the solutions here, but I don't think I'm going to come close to surprising you with them. There's the legalized movement, there's harsher laws, the whole change the punishment to a civil issue rather than a criminal one. There isn't anything wrong here at all. Basically, the whole gambit. And honestly, I don't think it's necessary this time. And Drugs are a wide topic that Each drug kind of deserves its own set of solutions. And if you haven't learned it about me yet, there's no fucking way I'm doing easily 100 plus hours of research for what would be less than a single page of this whole script. So instead, I'm going to go soapbox. See you soon. So what do I think about drugs? They're fucking awesome. And fucking dangerous. Like all the women I sent for, I can't get enough, and they'll probably kill me one day if I do manage to get involved with them. I honestly really enjoy drugs like weed and alcohol, and I'm not approved with drugs. I think in general, people should be allowed to do whatever drugs they want as long as they can control themselves. So, what do I think is the answer? Have you ever heard of the Shocker? Or, sorry, I mean an iron fist and a velvet glove. I know it sounds harsh, but it actually merges both sides of the argument from earlier into this one. As a person, I really value both personal freedom and personal responsibility. but also really believe in helping people and having a social safety net. So really, what I'm saying is if I had my way, we'd legalize all drugs and let people do whatever the fuck they want with them. Until they fuck up or show signs of addiction. And then that Iron Fist part where someone who sells drugs to kids or drugs that are spiked throwing a cell to rot while someone who's addicted, especially to dangerous drugs, are sent to treatment even if they don't want to be. Is that authoritarian? Yes. But the problem is that we're both evolved to love drugs and not evolved to have so many of them at our fingertips. Meaning that we're going to do them and there's no reason to criminalize that. That doesn't mean we can let our guard down. Quite the opposite. I think that things that feel good should be experienced, but within reason. And if we do it all the time, it'll hurt us. And here's the other thing. I don't really hate most sides of the drug argument with one exception. The fuck up they chose this side. I find that both really irresponsible and merciless. Because people deserve help, especially if they're trapped in a loop. I'll never understand the people that are morally opposed to opening treatment facilities because they think addicts deserve to suffer, but they're somehow getting one over on the system. Most cruelly, some people I've seen with this belief literally believe that the weak should just die. Which is funny, given that they're pretty major cowards in my opinion, which is, you know, a pretty big weakness. Uh, but every other argument I can at least understand. I especially now understand that we're kind of built for drugs, but that they very well might kill us. Anyways, let's get you out of here. And kaboom, that is episode 3 done. A little bit of a lighter topic in some parts and darker in others, but I hope you enjoyed it anyways. Even if you didn't learn anything new, I appreciate you listening to the end. It means the world to me to have you listen. Thank you so much. As always, if you have opinions, advice on how to make the show better, hate mail, confessions of love, and really anything else you want to tell me, make sure to email me at waytadpods at gmail.com. That is W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. And remember to check out my other podcast, wait Nerd, where I do basically the same thing with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc., where hopefully the topics are just as interesting and you get to see the English major nerd side of me come out more often. But anyways, have a good night, don't murder, have fun. If you partake, tip your dealer. This has been Why Are You Talking About This? And I've been your host, William. Good night.